just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Good old boys. A uh, Mark. Bog beef. Josh. Joshua Steinman. We'll call you Josh. You've you've got a, a very extensive resume. Uh, I know you were a uh, Navy veteran officer. Uh, served in in the Iraq War. Thank you for your service. And can you tell us? Uh, can, can you tell us about? Uh, and that's not even before you uh, arrive at the White House. Um. So. Uh, whatever background you, you, you'd like to give, and we'll, we'll go further into it later. Sure. Uh, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. Fan of the show. So, yeah, I started off my career out of college. I had this weird academic counterterrorism background where I was just doing a lot of reading about, you know, all the things that happen in the Middle East and in these organizations and got pulled into some interesting corners of the military, uh, out of school and Did got to do, Farsi? I, I took Farsi in college. <laughs> I also took Turkish in college. <laughs> um, I don't really remember much. I can kind of hit on girls in Turkish still. Uh, I must be a psychic. Wife. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, I did, I did two deployments in Iraq um, and yeah, had, had a great team both times. And then I got into some of this like military, I don't like using this word innovation. A lot of people use it, but like, how do we bring novel technologies into the military? This is when I was basically on my way out my last two years, I knew I wasn't going to stay and got involved in some of that, trying to find ways to bring cutting edge stuff to you know, folks at the tip of the spear and did that then left, went to, went to Silicon Valley, went to go work at a little startup and really out of nowhere, a former boss asked me to leave the startup about a year and a half in and come take a really big job on the national security council staff. And I couldn't say no to the guy he had made me in the military. And so I did and spent four years. I was the first man in and effectively last man out on President Trump's National Security Council staff. And I owned basically all technology issues. You could sort of, you know, contest that. But I owned cyber, telecom, supply chain. And then there was a little bit of cryptocurrency stuff that I did as well. So did that for four years, left in January. And now I run a cybersecurity startup of my own. And I'm out in uh, the People's Republic of California. My God. And the, the, the National Security Council. God knows what you've heard, what you've seen. That is the... Uh... Can't tell God. It's classified. <laughs> Look, I can explain the DMs, okay? It's out, <laughs> out of context, please. <laughs> but you've definitely been uh, to the smoky rooms uh, uh, in that capacity, yes? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's awesome, and we we won't we won't hover on that. That's uh, that's quite- ask whatever you know. There will be stuff I can't say, but I'm happy to, within the bounds of legality and propriety, as I'm used to saying, uh, mm. tell you. I, what I just I can. have, I just have one question: Are the people, for the most part, political leaders in charge as 
technology illiterate as they seem? Oh, it's much worse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, there, here's the thing. At a certain level, the folks that get into those types of jobs tend to be pretty smart. Yeah. So, for example, like Wilbur Ross was the Secretary of Commerce, super sharp guy. That dude's been doing, uh, you know, financial deals, big $100 million, billion dollar deals for his whole life. Super sharp guy. So even at like 90, whatever he was, or like 85, or I, I don't know his age, uh, he and I got along very well. Like you could tell him about stuff and he'd get up to speed really fast. But he's not like us, you know? Like he has people that do technology stuff for him personally and he didn't grow up digitally native. And I find that with I found that with a lot of folks where it's like, I can't tell you how many like cabinet members or like sub cabinet members, meaning like undersecretary, deputy undersecretary, deputy secretary, these are different ranks inside inside linguistic baseball, but you know, would literally come to me and you know, my job was a policy job. Like, what should the United States do on TikTok or Huawei? But they'd come to me and be like, so should I use a VPN? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd tell them, you know, I'd, I actually had like a little cheat sheet that I'd give people. Um, but, uh, yeah, interesting job. You know, hopefully, and I, I, I sort of believe this, we've talked about before that I, I kind of believe leadership is just a basically a uh like a universal trait that's constant throughout time and i'm maybe i'm going too far here but i i think that being the manager of uh, of, uh, of of a hilton or a mcdonald's is the same sort of skills that, that someone uses as a military officer leading men in the field or being the president of the united states and yeah i'm with that i'm with hell that. hell yeah uh yeah. and uh you know <clears throat> I've spoken on this show. We've probably spoken to several. We've spoken to several people who worked under Donald Trump, and you know, as that as that thing, we he's uh, you know, as that leader in that position, you know, he doesn't need to know any of the answers, but he needs to be able to know how to pick the right people. And I mean, obviously, we know in some cases uh, it didn't work out, and maybe that's uh, I don't know if it was even possible to succeed in all those cases with these things with you know deep state actors and stuff like that. But every person I've talked to that's worked for him has been, uh, 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 awesome. What, what do you think about Trump as a leader? I liked him. He, you know, first of all, what I'd like to tell folks is like, and I've seen this personally. So this job that I had on the NSC staff, no one expected me to have it. Right. And, and even then, like the people, my peers, the other senior directors on the NSC staff, and just so that you get a sense of it, a senior director answers to the national security advisor, and they're basically a portfolio manager, and their job is to translate the president's desires and then basically be the communicator to all of the agencies inside the executive branch as to what the president wants. So you don't exactly like have power right? Like you're not signing off on like big initiatives. You're not doing, you know, a ton of stuff, but you're basically the go-between. I hate, I hate to, I hate to say it. I don't mean to undercut the job at all, but like I wrote strategy documents that reflected what the president wanted. I made sure the agencies understood what the strategy was. And then I wrote implementation, me and my team wrote implementation guide. And I had a team of about eight to 12, depending on what year it was. 
And then we wrote implementation guidance, and then we made sure that those departments and agencies were implementing what the president wanted to the best of our ability, which was limited, right? Because you're talking about like a few people for like every agency. So, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a big job. I was very I was very junior. I was like 15 years junior uh, in age to the to my peers. Um, but you know, what you learn is that a lot of the job, like you were saying, is basic management tasks, asking the right questions, following up, listening, you know, taking care of your people. And yeah, I mean, I think there are some really basic things that most leaders do that if you do them, you know, you're, you're set up for, you can be set up for success no matter where you are. In, in the Politico article that, uh, that announced announced your hiring. There was an interesting thing that they said, <clears throat> quote, it's unclear what Steinman's exact title will be as Trump may reorganize the NSC bureaucracy. Now, is that just, does that just mean um, Trump might change people's titles or that? I mean, th- that, that sounds very like, 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 uh, like, is there, is there something there? Should he have done that? Is that something that could be done? Would it be, uh, yeah. am I looking into something too much there? What, what, what is that? So national security councils are somewhat novel. Um, they've only really existed for less than a hundred years. And it, essentially what happens is at the end of the second world war, a bunch of smart people, Congress start, start to think, and they say, you know what, the, the president really needs a staff that can help him manage this like very enormous national security bureaucracy. And it's essentially left to the discretion of the president how he wants to organize those affairs. In the actual law that creates it, they don't even create the role of national security advisor. What they say is you need this person who's basically like a top paper pusher in the national security bureaucracy. It's called the executive secretary. Basically, that person's job is to move paper in between the White House and all of the agencies in the executive branch. So the DOD, the, the Department of Energy, CIA, all these places, the National Security Act, basically, I'm pretty sure it's the National Security Act of 1947. I'm sure people will correct me if I'm wrong, but creates this entity called the Executive Secretariat. And it's basically like an email protocol. They're like, this is how you move information around. This is how the president interacts with everybody. So. Every president since has essentially, and again, by the letter of that law, um, they're allowed to do whatever they want. Like Kennedy had like 10 or 15, not, I don't think he had more than 20 people on the NSC staff. Um, and so you imagine like a president handling the Cold War, you know, engagement with the Soviets, he's got less than 20 people to cover down on the entire globe on a massive Department of Defense and intelligence apparatus, all these things. And then, you know, if you look at what we took over when President Trump took over from President Obama, there were over 400 people on the NSC staff. It really is up to the presidents how they how they do it. That that Politico article, um, I'm I'm fairly certain I know who or some of the people that that talked to that reporter about that article. And basically what they were alluding to is that there were. there were some structural changes that were going on at the NSC staff um, and cyber had 
multiple places where it was answering to, it's really not worth going into. Um, but no. we, what we ended up doing is we consolidated it down at the end to less than 150 people answering to a national security advisor. And like I said, it was all what I ended up doing. Ultimately, it was all cyber telecom supply chain. But the president can do whatever he wants. I guess the, another way you could look at the reorganization that happened after World War II, and I think this all happened in like 47, they killed the War Department and replaced it with something new. And we've, we've, uh, that's what we've had since the end of the world, since the end of the war. And, uh, the, being the head of the War Department in the past was, I would say, a, a more powerful political position than, it, like, being the you know the Joint Chiefs of Staff today is nothing compared to like the, the power that like a the Department of War had in let's say during the Civil War or after. Would you agree, or is that going too far? Uh, it's not that I would disagree. It's that I would say yes, and so. I mean, the interesting thing, and again, I'm, I'm no historian, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a guy that reads books occasionally and then had to operate within that apparatus. So I would just, you know, limit what I was going to, what I'm about to say, which is that, that right now we have this construct uh, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff where those guys' actual job is advisory. They don't actually control troops in combat, so to speak. You know, what we do have are combatant commanders who own these massive bureaucracies in and of themselves that are, that are in most cases regionally focused, but we've got others that are trans-regional. Uh, so uh, CENTCOM, you've heard, UCOM, NORTHCOM, SOUTHCOM. And, and those are the folks that actually oversee theater uh, operations, right? They're the ones responsible for things that we're doing in a in an environment and what the joint chiefs and what the services do is they they call it mte man train equip and so you know the the joint chief's job is to advise the president um, and then we have services whose job is to prep people and material to then go forward into these cocoms and then do whatever the COCOM commander, who's a four-star military officer, um, you know, directs them to do. And hopefully those activities are downstream of strategy that's written both in the Pentagon by the civilian leadership of the Pentagon, the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary themselves, or the White House. So it's this incredibly elaborate organization. And, you know, you have to imagine, and this could sort of, I know, we were saying, oh, maybe we'll talk about Boyd, but it's just an incredibly complex organization. And I just feel like before then we had a department of the Navy, we had a department of the Army, you had the Department of War, the Department of State. And it just given how complex it is now, it, it must have been much simpler, you know, previously. I'm not a historian either, uh, and I don't want to go too far off topic, but I, I would say – my perspective, my extremely biased perspective would be that it started out as a, like the, the War Department and, and the predecessor started out as a, an important department, but it became a really important one during, after the Civil War, when it uh, had a lot of authority over certain domestic, like a certain domestic 
reconstruction program, mm -hmm. and then after 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 the end of the, you know World War II, well we we we're now an empire. We're now a global empire. We have new needs. We need to we need to melt this down and reforge it into something something much different. And I, I, I my guess is that if that ha this hasn't already happened, that sometime either in the in the last decade or maybe now they're going to do that again because you, you kind of have to and it, you probably this is probably in your like right in your wheelhouse because the whole information warfare thing is a totally new frontier yeah it just yeah, doesn't it, have the same needs as the old, old system i think you're really touching on something important um around like what are we using the military for what does the military do um and there's interesting places we could go with that but i would just point out that you know if you if you look back at the history of what of things the united states military was used for i mean building large infrastructure projects exploring yeah. the country right like um uh, go look up who, uh, you know, Lewis and Clark were commissioned officers. Um, I think it was like uh, something, it's really interesting. It's like expedition corps or something like that, but like they were commissioned, uh, wow. by the president and the same thing, you know, army corps of engineers, go look at the history of West point and like why it's really an engineering school. It's like these people were building roads and dams and all these things. Well, where were they building those things here in America? And obviously that's changed a lot over the past, I think you, uh, you know, my gut is that you're probably right, right? After the Second World War, empire has arrived. Um, and yeah, I think it's interesting, obviously the, the empire such as we may believe it to exist has new needs. Um, and those are, are increasingly digital. Well, that's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if people have heard of Stuxnet. Uh, this was, uh, yeah. uh, I'm not going to, there's, there's great articles about it. There's, there should be a movie about it if there's not, but, uh, Stuxnet was a famous attack the United States did on, on Iran's nuclear capacity. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that, that I thought about that and why I'm, I'm guessing that no one's like, no one's really sure. Uh, okay. Well, here, here's, here's my, my, you should, you should kind of explain what happens. This is a really interesting story. If people don't, people don't know. Oh, okay. Well, um, well, uh, by the way, Joshua, do you, do you know what, I'm, do you, I'm sure you know what's next now? Do you want, do you want to tell us? I'm sure you do. The answer I'm supposed to give here is I've heard of it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the story is that, so there, Iran was building, uh, these, these, um, Centrifuges, right? They 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 had these centrifuges. They were going to start enriching uranium, uh, right? And uh, the United States military is like, okay, so how do how do we? Or I don't know who someone decide but, how to. Sorry, good. Yeah, I, I would just say the allegations are it's possibly that it was a a U.S. operation that other nations that are also suspected. Um, Na anyway, neighbors, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, <clears throat> right. Sorry. So, so the idea. So the the questions. How do you how do you stop this? You can't drop a bomb or something like this. Uh, so and none of these computers are hooked up to the internet. So they there's if you if you work in an office building, you will uh, one of your when you get hired, they'll tell you uh, if you find a USB stick from the parking lot, don't plug it into the computer. Why do they say that? Because this is what they did. They created this 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 very complicated virus that uh, and they they just would drop it in in USB sticks and people would pick it up and they'd stick it in their computer. And I, I, I'm not entirely, 
I don't buy that explanation. I, I, I'm sure oh, that it, it was like a USB. I, 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 oh, I don't no. buy that. Oh, no. it's it, Because the, what, what it did was it, when you took it to a computer, the computer looked it looked around the computer and said, am, am I a, uh, a General Electric Model 8492 centrifuge? No, yeah. I'm not that. Okay, then just, then just hang out here and catch the next ride on the internet or on the next disc. And someone... Someone ha- that the the building was not hooked up to the internet. Someone carried in a physical thing. Now, right? I just I don't think it ha- like they found it in the parking lot. So hey, what's this? I think that like you know uh, there was there was spying involved. Someone convinced them to do that, probably unwittingly. But yeah, I'm just it's a, well, the idea is they plugged it in. It looked for these. It looked for the computers running these centrifuges, and it made them destroy themselves. Yeah, well, I'm, and it was extremely sophisticated. But they didn't have to be the parking lot from that place. It, it, it once it spread all throughout. Right. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. Um. Any. The, but the thing that jumps out at you there that when you talked about cyber as a as a new frontier is that I don't know. It seems like that uh, cyber attacks are under a certain level of perceived aggression that you can just kind of do it and. No one's really, it's not, it doesn't really seem like any, it's justified to attack back. So, so the Chinese government can like, apparently just have hackers sit there at, at base with a military uniform and try to hack in the United States. And that's not really something like that we're allowed to, uh, directly retali- retaliate. And this, this seems to be like throughout the globe. Is, is this true to some extent? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You've actually really come to one of the central issues on this big debate over, you know, what I guess you could call cyber war, digital conflict, which is around this issue of the threshold of the use of force. And I think you're right. The world is absolutely trying to figure out where these types of activities fall on that spectrum, right? Like, you know, on on the extreme side, of one spectrum, you've got things like propaganda, influence operations. Um, and then maybe like moving a little bit to the right, you've got things like uh, subterfuge or, um, you know, other other types of clandestine activity. And then at a certain point, you've got things that I guess we start to call like violence, like destruction of property. Uh, destruction of material, like military equipment, and then like death of personnel, things like that. And and, and these things go all the way up a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, this is this, this exact issue was very hotly debated uh, in the public. And you can imagine also in private, you could imagine. And I think that people are still trying to figure this out because you know, on the one hand, here in the United States, incredibly litigious culture. We've got all these laws around um, hacking. You can look up the CFAA, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, other laws as well, DMCA, blah, 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 whatever. Is um, Kevin, where, is like, Kevin Mit- Mitnick still allowed to use a computer yet? You know, <laughs> he should be. He should be. If uh, If not, I regret not. Arrange, you know, arranging it but um yeah so and and those those things matter because they create the environment where folks come come from right and so you know imagine uh someone's getting hacked and a standard standard thing that people do they'll 
you know, some North Koreans trying to hack us, they'll, you know, go from North Korea to like, you know, some other nation, sit there on a computer, then they'll go to some other country and then maybe they come to the United States and then they finally hit the target. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of folks would say like, oh, you can't, you can't hack back against that unknown hacker. Maybe they're North Korean, maybe they're not, but it's like the minute you go back to that system that's hacking you, if it's here in the United States, uh, third amendment, fourth, or fourth amendment, fifth amendment, all these things, you can't do that. It's illegal, blah, blah, blah. And the point is, is that like, yeah, we, we, our mindset, the country's mindset, the, the bureaucracy's mindset was very much held captive by this debate over like, if we flip a bit in another country, is it going to be an act of war? Right? Like you change mm-hmm. a letter in a word document. Like, is that world war three? And it's, it was very interesting. This played out in the public as well. Lots of people in public have, have had these conversations. Um, and it just goes to show you like, this is a new, it's a new thing. Just like you were saying, it's a new thing. We're going to be dealing with this for, a, for a while, but it's like, you know, we're in like the middle of the beginning, as they say, we're not the beginning of the beginning, but the middle of the beginning. Well, that, that building with, with the, with the centrifuges, <clears throat> it's like someone dropped a bomb on it with no one inside the building. It's, I mean, that's, know, that, that's, this is a point that I would make to people. It's a point that I make now. It's that what happens when you can take digital stuff and get kinetic outcome from it? Cause that's exactly what you're talking about. Who needs a bomb when you have the right code? Oh, wow. And everything now, you know, it's, it's, we've seen with, with, uh, they have, they have a hard time building cars because they're, 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 they're so full of computers and everything has all these chips in it and stuff like that. Okay. I brought, I mean, there's also one, one last thing in this vein. It's, It's also a force equalizer in some ways. Like in theory, let's say in 2014, if a very small country was, angry at a very big country you could do something like you know hack sony pictures and and mm-hmm. cause a lot of economic damage to them and say we're doing this because of the your country's foreign policy you should stop you should, you know and the things you're doing the things you're saying you need to stop that uh north korea had no capacity to hurt the united states directly aside from you know a suicidal nuclear missile attack but you know this doing something like this destroying millions or billions of dollars for for a company that's connected to you know we we all know like every like all the like all of our the people who run Sony are friends with the people who run the country you're saying okay we can't we can't hurt you but we can we can do this to them and like mm-hmm. that's that levels the playing field especially if you say you have the largest and most powerful military in the world but you don't necessarily have the best cyber ops or whatever well then you're that's a problem for your country it's like a digital airplane flying into a high rise (laughs) well so here's some things that can happen uh so the uh what's now known as the iran us rq 170 incident uh, I, don't, I don't know if people know about this, but uh, a, a real high tech. I don't know if the public was even knew about this this drone yet. We flew a drone over Iran. Now I don't I don't know if you're allowed to comment, but what I've heard is well, no, it's it's on the it's on, it's on the Wikipedia. So it says uh, 
this this drone was flying over. It was it was uh, telling where it was at by using GPS data. So they just spoofed this GPS data and they just flew the plane down, parked it, <laughs> and sold it to the Chinese. Uh, which okay, there's that. Now, but okay, so when I talk, when I brought up Kevin Mitnick, so Kevin Mitnick was the most infamous hacker of all time. Which, but which was funny is that he when he hacked into systems, he did not use a computer. He used a telephone. He would call people and say, "Hey, it's Bob from accounting. Um, I forgot my password. Can you tell me my password?" And they would give him the password, and then he was in. And if you look at uh, the United States, uh, if you look at the Chinese stealing the technical plans for the F-22, our jewel, I love the F-22. It's so amazing. If you look at the, the if you look at, uh, if you, look, you ever see one at a, at a air show, it's the most jaw dropping thing you've ever seen. It's like no plane ever. And the Chinese stole the plans, uh, at Honeywell. Now I don't know, but I think this was, they had a guy in. And so this was, uh, what we call hacking, uh, social engineering. And the, the question here is like, uh, it seems difficult to separate straight espionage from cyber war. Is that true? Totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I think what you're touching on is really important, which is that absolutely humans in any system are always going to be some of the weakest parts of that system and cyber is no you know it's no exception and you're absolutely right in in many cases the point of entry is a human being i don't want to say making an error in judgment but possibly making some kind of a mistake maybe that mistake is they build a computer program that uh, has a vulnerability maybe that mistake is they think they're logging into the website, and in fact, they're logging into a fake website that's stealing their credentials. As any number of mistakes, you know, they think they're picking up their colleague's USB drive, and they're just going to plug it into their computer to see whose it is so that they can go return it to them. Whatever is going on there, it's like the human beings are often, you know, that, like you said, the access point. And again, it just goes to the fact that the way that I like to describe it to people is like, it's not that there's like, well, it's not like there's like a, do, a domain of cyber. I mean, there kind of is, but what I try and say, I've tried to articulate this previously is there's this information layer in society, right? It's, it's tweets, it's computer programs. It's like data streams coming off of like IOT. It's your car calling out to the cloud. It's all these things, right? There's this information layer you know, very similar to like, there's a monetary layer, right? And actually in some places, the monetary layer is the info you know, with the information layer, whatever. Just like there is like energy, right? Like I can, I can take a plug and I can plug it into the wall and I can pull power out of it. There's an energy layer to society. There's an information layer to society. And that information layer intersects with like all this other stuff that exists in various places. And what's going on is because that information layer is becoming more and more central and more and more powerful and more and more critical to the functioning of our society, people are finding ways to exploit that information layer and turn it to their own ends. Yeah. Uh, look, for example, a lot of people now hook their refrigerator up to the internet. Fucking insane. Why, like, why are you doing that? Like, you know, I, I, I mean, 
Well, yeah, no one's probably going to hack your refrigerator, but they could. Why would you add? Like, we, we we are voluntarily adding layers to this to this mess. It's 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 one of the most ridiculous things. We complained about this a lot on our podcast with yeah. regards to cars. You know, yeah. the first car I had was an was almost was I know it was completely analog. It was so old, it didn't have any computers in it, and uh, there <laughs> there's a lot to be said for that. Totally. Yeah, 1996, 1997, people start putting computers into, into cars, and yeah, now, geez, can't find one without it. Honestly, it really started, I, I think uh, computers and cars basically start with the EPA, because uh, you really, <laughs> EPA starts like 72, and you start to get these, um, this is when like all of a sudden the Corvette only has like 180 horsepower, why is that? Well, the EPA, and then you... It's all the emission stuff, but because like if you look at like the cars from like the I love old cars, like old like uh, Cadillacs from the late '60s, they will have um, they will have automatic automated climate control. They had a a oncoming headlight sensor, all analog, all analog. Mm-hmm. It's all all potentiometers and stuff like that. Beautiful. Um, which brings me to uh, uh, maybe a bigger topic. Um, I. I'm working on one of my old car, made 1971. I <clears throat> pull the gas tank; it's rusted out. I need a new gas tank. Buy a new gas tank. And um, I'm someone that hates foreign manufacturer. Everything should be made in America. That's that's mm-hmm. what I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. I buy a new gas tank for a 1971 car, and it comes in, and it's made in Taiwan. And that was the first time in my life I thought, hmm, maybe, uh, uh. Not maybe not so much. I love Taiwan, but maybe we need to keep Taiwan around for a little bit longer so I finish my car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is yeah. There's cool. There's cool yeah. stuff happening, right? Like there's a bunch of startups that are working on like 3D metal printing, or they're working on like, hey, can I, you know, instead of um, having to build like a a big metal press that only makes one part, can I get some robots that can make any part? Um, so there's a cool stuff happening there, but yeah, I mean, we absolutely gutted the industrial base in, you know, basically the late eighties, nineties, two thousands. And yeah, I think it was a huge, huge mistake. How, how hot is the Taiwan situation? So the, the biggest question that like, um, I would, I, I don't know if I would trust anybody else to tell me the answer is like. Uh, and we talked about before with like, you know, talking about Europe, like trying to figure out how much different people, like how much the French and German hate each other, like the, the, how much actually matters. And, uh, like my question, this is maybe a dumb question. How bad do the Chinese want Taiwan? Let me start by saying that I am in no way, shape or form a, uh, a China expert. Obviously I, I did a lot around the Chinese issues for many years when I was on the NSC staff. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a China scholar. And so I would, I would just put that, put that up front. Now that said, I think that there's a lot of stuff in the historical record and then even just what they say both publicly and then, you know, the speeches that eventually leak out from like the people's party Congress and all that other stuff, that there's a few things going on here. Like one, from my layman's assessment, 
the Chinese on on the one hand feel like the issue of Taiwan is an issue of like their cultural like rectification as like a great power, right? Taiwan is like an insult. Mm. Um and and it must be rectified, brought to a heel. Because remember, there's a there's a there's a bunch of books written about this, but I just finished one um, about these two very powerful uh, families, Western families, non Chinese families, that did a bunch of business in China until the Cultural Revolution called Last Kings of Shanghai. Um, but you know, you had Western companies, British companies doing all this opium work in and around China, um, all of this, I'm sure they would say like corruption, um, perversion of their systems, et cetera, humiliation, you know, like uh, um, a bunch of Western powers like came into China and like took pieces of land and were basically like, oh, this is sort of ours right now. Like this is, this is our concession in uh in in this portion of china small but but still you know it's like imagine if um you know the if some european country came and imagine if the dutch came back and they were like we're going to take manhattan back for a while and you guys can't do anything about it exactly um, what i, I mean, was going to compare taiwan to yeah it would be like yeah. if, the, if, if the french captured manhattan during the civil war yeah. and refused yeah. to give it back I mean, yeah, like, exactly. obviously, from our perspective, we'd be okay with that. But I guess if you lived <laughs> in like the north, you probably wouldn't like that. And so, like you, ha- so I think there's a whole bunch of stuff here. But some of it is like they're pissed, right? Because like, who went to Taiwan? It was basically the people that I think, again, layman's assessment, like in their mind, these were the people that were basically like aiding and abetting the West as they, you know, extracted all this value out of out of China. And like their answer to that was. Mao and the you know communist revolution and all these things so I, I think on one hand there's a historical thing there um then there's this geopolitical thing where it's like yeah you know they they want to show the world that like you know they can then there's the economic stuff right you've got like a whole bunch of value in that island not only things that were taken when um you know these these political refugees left mainland china and went to taiwan but obviously, it's been incredibly successful in the years since. And lots of people talk about TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which is like, you know, they make all the chips or some of the chips, a whole bunch of other companies as well. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why. And I think the, the top line here is just like they really care. They think it's very important. I know a bunch of smart people who think that they can't actually mechanically take the island. I hope that's true. But obviously, like that's that's not not something I would want to bet on. But I don't know. I'll leave it there. They, it's like you you nailed it. I think I think I'm pretty sure that they refer to the time from the middle of the 19th century to uh, their success, like success in the Chinese Civil War, as the century of humiliation. Like that is the official name in in mm-hmm. the, their t- their textbooks at that time. I mean, like it, it that in. Uh, I'm not a fan of China, but they are correct. Like they had, yeah. you know, yeah. treaty ports severed from their country. Their, their country was carved up, and you know all the things that we complain about. You know, f- the the free trade, like that our leaders did to us 
in the in yeah. since the nineties. That was done to them on a much greater scale at that time. So like, yeah, there's that. Having 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 Taiwan there is everyday proof that you're still not as powerful. You're still we we as Americans we have this funny view because we like just have taken for granted our entire lives that we run the entire planet. Like there's this island just offshore of China that's part that should be part of China, and we have turned it into a garrison that they can't touch. That it's actively sitting there. It, it, your comparison to Manhattan was spot on. It's like here's a sign that you're still not not at parity with with the the people who did this to you. So that's going to always be a problem. It's a it's a as you said too. It's also this economic prize. Like imagine what they could do with with Taiwan. I think they. I don't know if they could, as you say, mechanically take Taiwan today. I mean, if they were willing to, to you know, to risk risk it for the biscuit, they probably could. But it would be a bad deal. And my my assumption would be, unless the leaders of China are insane, they don't, they wouldn't see a reason to do that right now. But it's like it, I think in the last few, especially in the last like two years. They've ramped up the rhetoric about Taiwan significantly, haven't they? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, post post Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong again, same type of situation, right? The Brits yeah. basically helped create that 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 city, and uh, you know, again, it's like you know, it'd be like imagine if the you know some Asian Asian power just was like, no, no, we own San Francisco. It's ours. <laughs> um, and uh, no, what, what would we? What would, what would Americans think about that? Um, and I would just, I would just step out here real quick because you, you guys asked about President Trump and some of his like strengths, and I would just point this out, which is that you know, as a leader, as a businessman, I think that on, and I can't speak to his, I can't speak to his knowledge about. China or Taiwan, specifically from a historical economic, I can just say that, you know, he was someone that empathized with people that, you know, he, I wouldn't say maybe not empathize. He's someone who understood or tried to understand or tried to be able to, to sit down and talk honestly and openly with other world leaders and just understand where they were coming from. And I think it's a great, you know, it was a great talent. It is a great talent of his to be able to do that, right? Like this is, these are leaders, they have countries, they have interests, and they're trying to maximize them. And it didn't matter who was across the table, there's a way in which you can very respectfully understand exactly, or as much as you can, exactly what they want, understand what they want, understand why they want it. And then you can literally say like, well, that's not what we want, right? We can have an open conversation about that. He would say this all the time about about China. He's like, they're getting a good deal for their people. I want to get a good deal for America. And it's it sounds so simple, but it's really hard to do. And I just think it's really important. So even us having this conversation, right, which is so much more in depth than a, like, I'm pissed because the jobs went to China. Well, okay, sure. Right. And do we not want that to happen for America? Absolutely. Do we want to bring those jobs back? Most certainly. But you still got to understand what's going on. Once you understand reality, then you can start trying to figure out how to change it. Yes, yes. Couple of things. Um, <clears throat> number one, we'll call. Um, we'll have our own. Uh, what did you call it? the century of humiliation? We'll have our own century of mm-hmm. humiliation from uh, 
1865 until we restore Richmond as the capital. But uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, no, uh, that was a joke. Uh, okay, so, or uh, was it? Um, okay. Also, you brought up Hong Kong. I'm this Sunday. Uh, I watched with my friends uh, knockoff Jean Claude Van Damme and Rob Schneider. Fantastic movie set in Hong Kong, like all the great Jean Claude Van Damme movies, and uh, the British giving up Hong Kong. Not only giving up Hong Kong, but demolishing uh, Kowloon Walled City. Horrible for action movie genre. So, uh, <laughs> F you guys for that. But, okay, the, the thing about Trump and these negotiations with people, see, that's, uh, I mean, I don't think people understood it. Like, and this is the thing about management, leadership being the same thing everywhere, is that, like, in my opinion, when these countries, like, if China was to take Taiwan, I don't believe it would be because of bean counters figured out a number. It would be because of the same sort of internal power politics. Uh, I'm going to look dumb if I do this or I don't do that. Some, I have a rival coming up, uh, coming up underneath me that is universal to the human experience. This happens in every McDonald's and uh, all this stuff. You mentioned about his, his, his great deal with, with speaking with people. You it sure Kim Jong made it sound like Trump was the only person ever listened to him talked about his about his country's problems. Yep. I mean, it's what it might seem like. Yep. That I doesn't remember, cost uh, a nickel. When I when I was in the military, I was uh um was trying to go back to Iraq. And, uh, you know, you always want to go with the best people out there. And there was a very elite group of folks that I, that I knew that I'd worked with. And, um, they sent someone to come talk to me once and they asked like, um, who do you hate more, the Sunni or the Shia? They said this to me (laughs) and I said, I said, I don't hate either of them. I was like, you know, you got to respect the people that you're playing the game against. And, um, it turned out that that was the right answer, right? It's like, these are games, they're high stakes games. But like the minute that you allow emotion into it, the minute that you allow these other things into it and you don't just be very dispassionate, you're at a disadvantage. Absolutely. So I, uh, I, my favorite person, all history is Julius Caesar. I talk about him all the time. We have a lot of episodes about him and, uh, he was this way and, one thing that's like, uh, you know, his, he is every single person that's on the other side of him in the conflict that is unhappy with the current management um, is intrigued by this man showing up with, with you know, with the red feathers in, in, it, in his helmet. Uh, this presents a different opportunity if you come to people uh, not as like, um, you know, uh, I hate you. I'm here to kill all you all. The, and, and not the, obviously it's easy to be above that, but I mean, to really listen to people, really talk to people, uh, this, this is something that, that, that you're, you're able to tap into all this. I mean, uh, you know, when, when he was, when he was, uh, fighting the Gauls, he would have people tell him, uh, all the plans and stuff that, that, that the enemy, enemy, uh, armies had made. How do you do that? Well, that's having conversations with people that look like your enemy. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't cost you a nickel. 
it, it doesn't cost you anything. And that, I mean, that is the real uh, great sign of the leader. It's, um, there's that, there's this book that, that conservatives used to talk about that was written by, um, uh, the, I can't remember one of the, one of the, the big new left guys in the seventies wrote this book that was supposed to be like the, the Necronomicon of leftism or something. You, you know what I'm talking about, Merrick? I'm talking about rules for radicals. Rules for oh, radicals. Saul Linsky. Yeah. 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 Linsky, yeah. And he had one great point in there and it's not exactly right, but he said this, he said, if you are going to be the leader of a political movement, you should not be a, a real true blue believer in that movement. What? Because you will not be able to make deals to do things that are right because you're just going to be a, you know, a, a fanatic. And, uh, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I think that you can not be a fanatic for what your people, what your, what job you've been hired to do. You can be hired, be the CEO of IBM and you can uh, not know anything about IBM and you can do everything to, 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 to help the people of IBM that put you in that position. But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, I, I think that's a, a great skill, Mr. Trump. No question. Let's, um, I, you, you've, you got a great mind and I, and, um, this is something when people, people talk about philosophy is a lot online and it feels like a lot of them are just, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Philosophy gets kind of a groan, but it's also like the, the, uh, it's, it's, it's always been like the toppest tier of like, uh, of, I don't know if you get put into the, 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 into the 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 story like philosophy is is kind of it's sort of like a story so if you learn philosophy you have to know you you know you start with plato and you go this guy you go that guy and then there's william ockham and then there's and there's nietzsche and then there's all this stuff um that's sort of a bigger spot sir good i was gonna make a yarvin joke yeah. <laughs> uh go ahead yeah. Uh, no, no, I just did. Okay. <laughs> like, there's all these people, all these people, all these people. Curtis. Anyways. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, you know, especially it, it, uh, people think of it as like German, like you got like, uh, uh, it, it's, you know, the Hegel and the Nietzsche and all, all this kind of stuff. But like, okay, so first off, one of the questions is like, what is philosophy? So it's, I mean, it's easy. Uh, I, I heard Zizek gave an answer for this that I thought was a, a great answer. He said, it's, he said, philosophy it's not you know asking these dumb questions to yourself like you know what is meaning or whatever he says it's there's not only wrong answers there's only there are also wrong questions now a way i would put it in i'm sure i've heard this somewhere whatever but it's it's how to think and uh it's like how do you go about thinking and i don't know if he's ever been considered into the great hall of philosophers because i don't think he ever uh was a philosophy professor but the most American, and to me here, there is nothing less of, of a guy that, that I think you, are, you enjoy, we enjoy, is John Boyd. He, this, and I don't know if people know, so he was, uh, he's a lot of things. He was a fighter pilot. I just want to tell you, when I was looking it back up again, uh, some asshole, I don't know if it's a joke or whatever, but like, you know, Google will have, have these little short clip questions and stuff. One of the first ones they put up there was... Um, how many planes did John Boyd shot down? I was like, you, you, yeah. you, you prick, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you prick. But uh, I don't well, know. Yeah, if you want how, to talk. how many? 
Yeah, how many ships did Mayhan sink? It doesn't matter. Like, yeah, that's stupid. What? You don't need to be a you don't need to be a, a fucking steam engineer to to like to design like design like a, a, a powerful navy in the nineteenth century. And you don't and you don't bother you don't need to be an ace fighter pilot to be like John Boyd and design the great the most beautiful and effective jet fighter in history, the F sixteen, which I will stand every day all, all day long every day. By, by the way, one reason one reason I brought this up. So I've I've always I've talked about Boyd a lot with a uh, there's a one of the listeners of the show is a uh, is a Marine Corps officer. He's the first one that mentioned mentioned your name to me. He said you should really talk to this guy, and uh, and, and he was a he was a big fan of Boyd. We always we used to talk about Boyd, and he Boyd is um so he he's got a couple things we'll talk about, but he's also got some of these. They're all short. You should read everything he wrote. I mean, I, to me, he's one of the great philosophers. Oh, you want uh, what is? Wh- yeah. What is your experience with Boyd? What do you? Yeah. So, at the tail end of my military experience, and I was getting into this like military technology stuff. I was done with the deployments. The GWAT was basically over. That's what I'd come in to do, um, and I'd done I'd done some interesting stuff there. But um, that's global war on me, terror. Yeah. Sorry. Okay over 10 years old at this point, uh, <laughs> meaning like since it was, uh, they declared it over. But anyway, um, you know, me and 10 junior officers and enlisted guys were tapped to join a small little task force that answered directly to the senior officer in the Navy, Chief of Naval Operations is the guy's title, Admiral Jonathan Greener. And we were tasked to go out and find asymmetric opportunities to win the next war or stop us from losing the next war. And this basically sent me down the rabbit hole along with my nine other colleagues about like, how do we think about engagement, military engagements? How do we think about conflicts? And that was how I got started with Boyd. Um, And there are a bunch of great Marine Corps officers. There's some great civilians. You know, if you, if you interact with me on Twitter and I, you know, we all do, but, but for those that are listening at home, you'll, you'll come across some of these folks. I don't want to dime them out. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to taint them within a, with a relationship uh, that they didn't ask for um, to me. And so there are some great folks on the internet that, that talk and write and read about Boyd. Um, and I just sort of fell, fell down the rabbit hole. And then um, r- I wrote this piece uh, back in, I think it was like 2014, maybe 2015, um, that uh, – uh, that was just talking about the digital effect on some of Boyd's thinking. And I think I called it software is eating the war. It was sort of a takeoff on a Mark Andreessen essay that he wrote in the journal called software is eating the world. And I basically talked about how technology software was having this massive impact on or could have a massive impact on the way in which we do certain things in the military. And this, I think, gets to bog what you're getting at, which is that, you know, one of Boyd's like big memes, ideas, is this way of thinking. And I think this is what you were getting at, which is that Boyd says that there's this way in which we can model the way the human brain processes information, thinks about information. And he says, it's OODA loop, four letters, O-O-D-A, standing for observe, orient, decide, act. 
and is it human beings, human systems? They essentially approximate this, this, these four letters in a loop. They observe, they orient, they decide, and then they act. And then they go back to observing. And there are loops inside of the loop and all, there's all the complicated stuff. You could read all the essays, but I agree with you. I call Boyd a philosopher. I'd call him more of a martial philosopher. You know, I'd say there's like Sun Tzu, there's like Jomini and some of these like European guys, Clausewitz. And then for us Americans, I think there's Boyd. Um, and to me, the, the top line takeaway that I always had from reading his stuff is, and this isn't always right and Orthodox Boydians will get angry at me for saying this. So just, I got it. Um, but the faster that you can move through that loop, the better it is for you in conflict. And, and this yeah. is what Boyd took away. You know, Mark's making this point about the F-16, which is B Boyd basically said, when you're a pilot, when you're in the, uh, you know, when you're in the, um, the cockpit, like what you want to do is you want to observe where the enemy is at. You want to orient, you want to decide, and you want to act, and you want to do that stuff faster than your adversary. And that's what's going to lead to combat victory. By the way, I mean, we you said the death, we talked about the F-16. The F-16 is, you can tell this is the fighter, the fighter pilot's plane. The, the visibility, if you look at like where the pilot oh. sits, you see everything. You see everything. You're, you're surround, like you're, you're just sort of sitting on top of a plane and you're, you have this glass bubble above, above you. You, you observe everything. It's F it, sixteen is is the, the greatest plane ever. That's that's a great call. And when, you know when you look at that that is I don't I don't know it, 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 that's that's tremendous. And Boyd, you know specifically for the F sixteen and for the other jets that he and the fighter mafia helped design, you know, what he talked about is this thing called energy maneuverability theory. And again, that's getting like really technical, but but just to flesh it out even more is that the pilot sitting on top of the jet, the master of that object, right? And what you want is an airplane that as that pilot is moving through that OODA loop can as quickly as possible do things like gain altitude, lose altitude, change course, um, you know, uh, fire on the adversary. And so the point here, and I think actually it goes back to, Bog, some of your points about leadership, is that when Boyd and the fighter mafia were designing those airplanes, they empathized with the operator. This person has to be able to do these things as fast as possible. That's what leads to victory. Uh, I, I, I love it. This is, um, uh, you know, the thing about him, I really believe he is America's philosopher. And what, there's a couple reasons. I mean, so one is that America is a country It's I mean, is it a country or is it a machine built for war? Well, it's kind of both. Um, and whether it's, whether that's, um, Always been the case? I don't know. I mean, it's always been the case for every nation in history. If you're not that, then you are, uh, you know, you're a vassal of someone who is that. Okay. Well, every every country except for Costa Rica, I think. I think Costa Rica is the only country that doesn't have military. But every single country, uh, according to Gwen Dyer, is, is playing the game of war to defend their borders. But 
there are there was this country called Rome that wasn't really a country that was just a machine built for war. A lot of the people that built the United States uh, really admired Rome, and I don't want to get too deep in that. But I know when you start learning Latin, the first person that you read is Julius Caesar. Why? Because he's a military man, and he talks and he says who, what, when, where, why. He's the most direct, masculine. Uh, uh, to the point person there's, um, you know, this is like the opposite of something like Hegel. And so if you would expect, uh, you would expect the, um, and you know, I, I, I doubt, I doubt that the German, the great German writers, like, uh, the guys that invented, uh, quote unquote blitzkrieg and all this, I doubt those books are thin, but if you, if you have, if you're this certain type of, uh, like the Roman like the American, you don't need, you don't need uh, a thousand words. You, uh, it's just this very direct who, what, when, where, why this over here now go, uh, Caesar's Caesar's main advantage in, in battle in, in everything in life was speed. Uh, it was speed. He, in, in every, in every sort of way he had, he would, he would, they would have him carry him on, on a thing at night. Why he, tra- why he traveled himself in day. He was the fastest on, on the horse. He invented writing code so he wouldn't have to go visit somebody. He could have someone take it three. He dictated to three to four guys at once. It was speed. Speed uh, wins. In, in, speed kills. Yes. And uh, I don't know. It just reminds me. Uh, I love Rome. I love Caesar, all this stuff. And uh, all like when I read Boyd, I, I feel like it's the, these people would have understood each other. And if that's if 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 Clausewitz is for the German, whatever Boyd is the American mindset. I, I, no the, question. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. Like in in the back of my mind, and you know, I've, I'm working on the startup right now. Actually, it has to do a lot with the Stuxnet example that you gave. We're doing industrial control system cybersecurity, um, like for big factories. But Boyd has long held, obviously, my attention, my imagination, and. On this point, I've long thought about, and by the way, if one of your listeners wants to be an intern, I'm happy to sort of, you know, do some do some arrangement or something, but he's got this amazing presentation that he gives called Patterns of Conflict. He used to only give it in person. He would give it at the Pentagon. There's some grainy footage of him giving it. Uh, the audio is not great. And so I, I want to redo Patterns of Conflict um, for, for like YouTube or something like that. Uh, I've got a great idea of how to do it. One of his students has redone the slides from it. So we could totally redo it for a new audience, just like re-record it basically. Uh, but I need someone to transcribe patterns of conflict for me. Um, but he makes this point and he makes this point with various military leaders throughout history where he literally shows how you know movement, speed, all these types of things contributed to, to victory in combat. In, the, the thing about Boyd and I, I don't, I don't even know that much about him either, which is weird after, after well, somebody brought him up to us a long time ago and we started, we started you know, reading him and, t- and talking about it, talking about him. And it, it struck me like earlier I mentioned Alfred Mahan and he's kind of the opposite. He was a guy who, you, it wouldn't be too far to go say he was the father of our like uh, early 20th century Navy and eventually the American Empire itself. But like every like a lot of people have heard of him. He's like a 
not pop culture famous, but like a lot of people have re- I've read this book. I knew who he was. Uh, like Boyd, Boyd established the U.S. doctrine from like what uh, I guess the the 80s to the end of the to the end of the Cold War. Like he was is at least as important in his time as as Mahan, and yet very few people like in like Ooda Loop. I had heard of the Ooda Loop, but I knew nothing about John Boyd. How is it that he's so anonymous compared to other military thinkers? I don't understand that. Well, I think on one hand, you know, he didn't do a good job of, and, you know, he, he sort of acknowledged this, I think, from what I know of what people say who used to work with him and his, his acolytes. But, you know, a lot of his work is not really geared towards like a pop culture audience. Uh, And that's part of what I think you know, I could do if I was able to basically clone myself and, and put together some like online course on Boyd or something. But if we redo patterns of conflict as like a YouTube, a YouTube video or something, I think that'd be like one way to sort of get it out there. But then, you know, there's, there's no one book that you can read. There's no one, I mean, you can read the bios, um, but there's not a place where you can go to like read the doctrine. Um, you know, you there there is good stuff written by some of his students, like the um, who's the guy in Ohio, the fourth generation warfare manual. Um, there there's some good there's some good stuff written by his students, but again, it's not um, it's not he doesn't have anything that's like super tight, super concise, and written for mass audience. I think what hurt what well, I say maybe what hurt him is in comparison to Mayhem. Mayhem had. Theodore Roosevelt as his patron. He he loved him. He he, he and and you know if if you, if you need a hype man, he was he was you know perhaps the best in history. Also, he was an admiral, right? Like, uh, you know, and a and a war and a war hero to some degree. Yeah, yeah. boy, I, you know, got out as a colonel. I um, you know, talking uh, talk, talking to my friend, the Marine officer, I kind of got the impression that the, the Marines feel like they adopted him. Um, absolutely yeah and uh you know he uh well his papers they, are stored at quantico there you go uh i don't know if people know so he's basically credited with the plan for the first iraq war that was like the greatest success there is um <clears throat> you know a lot of that with him sort of uh being difficult uh not not being the this the, the rock star or whatever um i mean he he wasn't, it doesn't really seem like he was playing for career in this kind of thing, which, you know, they, they call uh, one of his nicknames was the ghetto Colonel, uh, which, which I love. Uh, but, uh, he's, um, you know, I, I, he, I, when he's teaching at the Marine Corps college and I know that the, the, the fighter mafia thing was just like a nonstop fight. I mean, and they wanted this plane this certain way. It was like, it would be been very easy to instead say, uh, I want this plane made by McDonnell Douglas and that's what I'm going to fight for. And we would all know his name and he would be a rock star, but instead they want a plane a certain way. And by the way, what I understand the F 16 compromised on, on their designs greatly, which makes you think, God, what, what if what they built it? If they made yeah. exactly what they want. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Boyd is 
and I'm, I, I imagine that it's probably actually written down somewhere, but there's this apocryphal saying of his where he's speaking to a mentee and he's like, uh, you know, son, you know, one day you're going to come to a fork in the road. You're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to do something or do you want to be someone? And you can't do both. And, you know, I think that that kind of sums up a lot of his attitude. And, and it's the attitude of, you know, many folks that I've worked with. Uh, well, my friends, uh, certainly my attitude. Um, you know, when I take a job, it's because there is something very specific that I want to accomplish. And you go after it, and then you accomplish it, and then you move on. But, you know, there is also a culture, and I think it's just endemic to any bureaucracy, of people that don't have a thing that they want to do, but they have a rank they want to attain. They have power they want to accrue, and they want to be. They want to be powerful. They want to be. And that's probably one of the other reasons. I'm sure, well, I, w I wouldn't want to impugn Admiral Mahan, but some might say that some of these very senior military officers most certainly want to be as opposed to do. Yeah. I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but you're a Navy guy. Jimmy Thatch. Oh, Boyd's, Boyd's system is almost like a, a epistemology, isn't it? Yeah. What's, what's that mean? What's that mean? A way of thinking. Th thinking oh, okay. about thinking. Yeah. I mean, okay, yeah. <laughs> but you had a guy like Thatch in World War II who he came up with like two or three different doctrines that probably saved thousands and thousands of lives and millions or billions of dollars worth of equipment and he's not really famous but if, yeah. if you know if you if you if you were an, uh if you were a kid and you were really into world war ii history you probably you probably read about the thatch weave or the big blue blanket but you know you, you don't you don't always become faint you don't always become famous for for being someone who who wins a war doesn't always work out that way yeah totally I, this is um uh bad podcasting, but I do want to jump back to before <laughs> I did have a question about the China thing I wanted to ask. Uh have you ever been to Okin Okinawa? No. Is is this is uh so I'm sniffing around that like okay, you have Japan and then you have Okinawa and then you have a little chain of islands that goes like uh Okinawa, um a little couple things then you're at Taiwan, then, yeah. then you're at China. Yeah. Is, um, I guess it's the only place to put military stuff outside of the Philippines, uh, that sort of overlooks the, uh, uh, the main hump there at China. Is that, is, is that like, even let's say nobody cared about Taiwan, uh, or even Okinawa as, uh, Oh, it's, it's their historical thing or this is an insult. Is it also just like um, this is just like there's no other real estate there. This this is the prime prime location. Look, it very, it very well may be. I think um, you know some of the great anti-U.S. trolling that I can respect are these maps that show U.S. military facilities in proximity to our current adversaries. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just think it's a great sort of, uh, you know, what do they call them that? Like topograph, not, you know, um, 
it's it's just a great visual uh, thing. Infographic, yeah. Infographic, yeah. yeah. It's like you look at Iran and it's like, oh man, look at all these military facilities like within X miles of the Iranian border or the Russian border or the, you know, in this case, sure, yeah, Okinawa, and actually have multiple facilities on on um, the Japanese islands mm-hmm. and then other places as well, um, and. Again, it goes back to sort of a degree of empathy, not even empathy, but like respect for a reality that your adversary inhabits. Yeah, right? we encircle like them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure to some degree they think about that. They must, right? Um, they better be. If they're, if they're yeah, not, they they're doing it wrong. Yeah, fire them. <laughs> it's, bad, it's worse than just general. the Manhattan thing. It's like Nova Scotia, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Like they're oh, all, yeah. Yeah, they were all occupied, and like the people yeah. hated. But we, we would we would feel a certain way about that. Well, look what happened when the Russians put nuclear weapons in Cuba. <laughs> we almost ended human life. <laughs> almost ended the human race. We were like, nope, not happening. <laughs> and by the way, I think Cuba is further away from the United States than Taiwan. You'd have to look that up. But Cuba's oh, it definitely what, 90 is, mi- yeah. yeah, 90 miles Cuba's off. Cuba's 90 and- miles away. Taiwan's not even that far. It's like Yeah, like exactly. So something. it's like, okay, uh, you, know, you just got to got to recognize that. It's it's funny like uh if if something was to, if that could uh, there's places in the world like <clears throat> like Israel, like Cyprus, all now like Taiwan that's like um you know uh you could say in some in some ways or it could become the most important patch of dirt in the world like the whole world could sort of uh you know uh, uh focus yeah. around it militarily it's funny that like it it that was certainly the case um a little bit i mean in terms of being an american you feel like these places aren't very far i know that they're quite far but uh you know the strait of malacca was the most important patch of the world for a long time and the united states Stoop, sent forces Stoop. you know into th- southeast asia um to help preserve you know what you call freedom of the seas but you know our ability to engage in commerce in that region philippines yeah something we said earlier got me thinking uh you know, we were when we were talking about the the people plugging in the USB drives, and there was there was a famous case of this recently. Uh, well, not famous. It was, everyone's heard of that. We talked about the FTX thing repeatedly, but some website said in three days we're going to release a sex tape between the uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and the CEO of Alameda, which. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, if you don't do this in three days, we're going to, we're going to release the sex tape. Well, sounds the like website sounds like a PR yeah, op to me. Well, the website was the virus. Like you clicked yeah. on the link, and it would get, it would infect your computer with a virus that stole nice. a bunch of people's crypto. Because who <laughs> would click on this other than somebody who has crypto? Right. It was like it was a you know, classic a classic honeypot. And this got this got me thinking about like. In retrospect, that's obviously when, when a hacker does it for money, it's a crime. But like when governments do it, it's an op, right? How do you identify an uh, an op, either cyber or PR? How do you, how do you spot it in the wild if you're just a normie? Oof, I don't know. I mean, obviously, like I've 
you know, seen a lot, done a lot, had a lot done to me, uh, and, and learned a bunch of hard lessons. I think, you know, one way to do this is read widely on the cyber stuff. There's great books, not great books as well out there. I think the other thing though is, and this is something we're going to have to develop as like a people, a civilization is that like, you got to ignore a lot. I think that's the biggest thing that I tell folks, like just, you got to develop that capacity to just ignore things, right? Like phishing, right? Someone sends you an email and says, oh my God, you must click your bank. Bank says, blah, blah, whatever. Delete the email, you know, go directly to your bank's website. Don't click the email, log in, call someone be like, Hey, is there anything wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Check. But this capacity for ignoring, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think these digital devices that we are building, you know, they're designed to keep our attention, right? And that's really um, at odds with the human mind, which I think is this tool for ignoring things. Like think of how much your brain has to just like not pay attention to. And then we have these devices, right? Their phones, their laptops, their watches, their their headphones. And their sole job is to break through all that biological training of your brain and get you to pay attention to stuff. And and I just think that in this digital age, like, and I'm just sort of taking the opposite tack to your your question, how do you recognize things that are malicious? And what I'm saying is, my recommendation to folks is to not try and think about whether or not something is malicious, but go back to that thing. What are you worried about? I'm worried about my bank account. Okay. Go to the website yourself, navigate there yourself. Don't click any links and just confirm that it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Fine. Done. Right. And I think that that's about the best advice that I can give. I mean, obviously there's technical (laughs) advice, like patch your computer Blah, 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 blah. Don't install strange applications. Use a VPN, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like the mindset that you have to adopt is one of like ignoring so much. And again, so so much of this activity is literally engineered to get your attention. I get phishing attacks all the time, right? I'm now, I run a small company now, email, et cetera. I know these things are phishing attacks and I feel guilt. I'm like, what if it's true? I should really click that link, right? And you just have to like quiet your brain, just hit the delete key. Don't pay attention. A few days ago, you were we were, you were talking about this and specifically related to like clickbait, and you said something yeah. that I had never really thought about before, which is that yeah, it might start with you're injecting money into the system, like you you're paying someone to create clickbait, but after a while you create a self-sustaining reaction. You, cr- yeah. you, you, have, you create the demand for a new kind of take that will fund itself. Like people, and, you, and you've said yourself, the way that they know that they succeeded in a, I mean, the conspiratorial phrase would be a psyop. But like, you've, yeah. cons- you've, you've succeeded in propaganda once you don't have to put anything into the system anymore. People will just pay other people to, to spread your hot take on their own. Yeah. Yeah, this is in context. So I've occasionally when I've been like had these moments of boredom, I've just like flash typed up these. So far, I've done two. I'm sure I'll do more. 
these little like stream of consciousness Twitter threads. And for folks at home, uh, it's just Joshua Steinman is my Twitter Twitter name. Feel free to follow it there. But I've written up these like stream of consciousness threads on like how things actually happen in Washington. And the and the thread I'm explaining this for the audience. The thread that Mark's talking about um, was like how to build um, the perception of something. And you know, I say in the Acela corridor, th- people say that in New York to Boston, D.C. Um, in the corridors of power, right? Uh, in, in in New York City and in, in D.C. on Capitol Hill, White House agencies, how do you create this sense of inevitability? How do you how do you create ideas? How do you meme them into reality? And you know, there's a there's a bunch of different ways this happens, but it, a lot of it does come down to like the creation of incentive structures for people to spread your message, regardless of whether or not it's true, right? Regardless of whether or not it's good. And the point I was making in the thread, which Mark's making here, is that so much more happens behind the scenes or even kind of on the side of the scene, in front of the scene, above, below, whatever, um, where like you read an article, maybe even one in a main, quote unquote, mainstream publication, And little do you know all of the things that went into that, right? Like the person went to a conference. Who was the conference put on by? The person read a a tweet. Who was the tweet put out by? The person read a a, a paper, academic paper. Who was the academic paid by? How was the research paid for? And the, the point here is that like the things that we see on Twitter, in the newspapers, et cetera, are so often downstream of massive money efforts, influence efforts, power efforts that again, just having worked where I've worked, lived where I've lived, I've developed absolute skepticism over the articles that get put in front of me. I mean, like, look, the New York Times, I think it's a New York Times conference is hosting this FTX CEO on the main stage, like next week or something (laughs) like that. Like, yeah, yeah. Th- this dude has like legit stolen billions of dollars, uh, supposedly. I'm sure someone would want me to say. Um, it appears that he is complicit and or responsible for. It appears that he is complicit and or responsible for, like the disappearance of just massive amounts of. I mean, imagine if they'd had Madoff after the scandal broke, and before he went to trial. It it, it just it's just obscure and strange. But as you peel back these layers of the onion, you find things that like, man, he was paying lots of journalists. He was he was paying lots of people that are friends with lots of people. I mean, so many of these things, the more and more you stare at, the more complicated you realize it is. And the less the media environment has to do with people in a good natured way, trying to understand reality and communicate it to the public. And instead it's something completely different. Mm, this, this, this is fantastic. This is a, um, a lot of people sort of talk confidently about this subject. They will tell you, they know, um, they will, uh, Oh, we, Oh, we know that they're in charge or, or these people do this or, or and, 
people will, I hear people often just sort of like, uh, speak confidently. Like they know how the big decisions get made. And I think most of the time these people don't have a clue. Uh, they just, yeah. they, they have some sort of, uh, they, they know one or two things and they're like, Oh, well, uh, cause I've, I've heard them all. I've heard convincing ones of all. I've heard the trial lawyers union decide everything in DC. I've heard the finance industry decides everything in DC. I've heard every single thing that, that possible one. And I haven't heard someone that, that cause I would want to know, know how, you know, like, like who, who picks up the phone, this kind of thing. I'm not asking for that, but I'm just saying this is a very important topic on the, on the ability to make to, and this also works on people who may not be in on the joke. When I was in high school, the, uh, there was a, there was a, like the head cheerleader girl was, uh, a couple pounds overweight. But everyone just sort of treated her because she was the queen bee as if she was the most beautiful woman in the high school. Even I was doing this. I was like, wow, you know, that's the top of the letter. There was a girl at our school who the, all the other girls treated her like garbage and it worked on me too. I was like, oh wow, she's ugly. <clears throat> it was a girl that was a, uh, she was a, a transfer student, like a, her, her dad was doing business in America or whatever from, uh, Norway. And she was beautiful. Mm. And like I, my brain somehow, this all worked on me. I was like, oh God, terrible. Well, who would want to date her? And everyone acted like this. And then like three years later after high school, she, be she became a model. And I, I saw her in a bikini and I was like, what was I thinking? Well, <laughs> what, what, what the hell? And then the girl who everyone thought was super hot was uh, a dog. What was going on in my brain? It works. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. the, is are we actually are we talking is this i mean are we talking about like is this how dc make does business is that because that's a bit that's that's the hottest topic of all everybody thinks they're the little boy who tells the emperor he doesn't have clothes on but in reality we're all the people who were like oh yeah i love your new fit it's beautiful that that's yeah. just the reality of it it's like all of this is correct is what i'd say all of it's correct. All your people that have given you their own theories. The answer is yes. And, um, uh, the, the, the thing about, you know, your, your cheerleader and the, um, Scandinavian model, you know, a lot of people talk about this in our circles, this Rene Girard, like desire is socially constructed, all, all this sort of stuff. Um, I've read some of that stuff and a bunch of my friends are much more well-versed in it. I think it is a real thing where it's like, we can, we can, humans are wired to observe what's going on, what other humans value and to essentially just assume that they must know more than we do and be like, okay, yep, I'm going to go do that. It's like you read these stories of like Tokyo Disneyland having this problem of like, people just get it into any line that they see. They don't know what it's for. They'll just get into it because um, they assume it's good. Oh, wow, it's a two hour line. Like might as well, like whatever it is, let's do it. Um, very human, very human trait. Uh, on, on the DC stuff, on the, on the you know, is everyone, um, is it all just ops? I tend, I tend to believe that in most cases, the things that exist in the information environment don't just sort of come about. They end up being someone pushing something, right? And there are degrees to which that can happen. And 
I think you can try and take apart, you know, who has an interest here? What is their interest? What are they trying to accomplish? How might they go about accomplishing it? And there's lots of layers to it. I've broken this down in, um, in these tweet threads that I've, these two tweet threads that I've done. I'm probably going to write a little bit about it. I've got a Substack. It's just my last name, Steinman at Substack.com. If folks want to sign up, I'll, I'll probably be writing a little bit about it there, but over the coming weeks. But yeah, I think the, the point here is that um, there were many playbooks that I saw used. Some of them got used multiple times. There were tactics that I saw get used repeatedly. Um, they weren't all always used, right? Um, but there are professionals out there. I, I know several of them. Um, there aren't many. And they know how to go about getting these things, getting ideas into the public mind. But honestly, President Trump is a great marketer, instinctive, instinctively. The AOC is a great marketer. I know your favorite. Um, <laughs> and some of these people, uh, they have an instinct, right? Um, but obviously, you know, if you if you want if you're running like a big company and you want people to like eat your you know, refactored soy slop that looks like a hamburger. Like there are certain things that you have, not have to, but if you do them, you can start to convince people that, oh, this tastes good. This is good for the environment. This is a way for me to signal virtue. This is, you know, what I, a way for me to save the planet, which I care about. Um, and a lot of these dark arts get used, I'd say almost indiscriminately. Oh. Wow. And either way, because I, I think it would come up, <clears throat> I do believe in objective beauty. So I do believe that there is a, um, uh, that like, that there is a real standard for a beautiful woman. However, right. Uh, you can get, you can get spun off track. You can, you can, you can have this, uh, sort of adjusted, uh, totally. maybe cause I, it's funny. You, uh, maybe I, uh, they say men are men are dogs. We think about women all the time. You brought up creating sort of a story. My favorite one, I, I bring it up occasionally, is uh, there was this thing, I don't know, about 10, this is before woke stuff sort of blew up, maybe in the early 2010s. I don't know if people remember this. All of a sudden, there was this huge problem, and it was like, it was the number one story. It was all, it, this was the thing that people would debate and discuss. And it was, it was uh, troubling the nation, and it wasn't Iran, and it wasn't Ukraine. It was that uh, women in New York City couldn't walk around with their breast exposed. And this was a huge story. And there was all the celebrities were weighing in, were politicians talking about. They may Meaning have like them. topless? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, Bruce Willis's daughter was sort of the main face of it. Uh, <laughs> she went to the farmer's market and she had to wear pasties and she was very upset. And this was just a, a, a huge story. And like that. Uh, you know, I don't, I doubt that, that one's sort of easier to see cause it's so goofy. Um, yeah. a lot of these things aren't goofy and a lot of these things like there is, we, we do weekly news and like, I have looked at a story before and I've, I've, I, I delete tweets sometimes where I run the story where I, I, we, I want to say the story and I'm like, this is outrageous. I hate this. I can't, I have a strong opinion about this. And afterwards I'm like, am I just publicizing this? 
Uh, yes, <laughs> we are. <laughs> they're just playing me like a string. Yeah, it's tough. It, okay. uh, yeah, that's oh, right. Good. I, I see stuff all the time. Sometimes I even retweet it, <laughs> um, where it's like, "Yeah, probably not on the level." Um, well, and you look, look back at it. Wasn't that campaign like free the nipple or something like that? Mm -hmm. It was just, it was so, uh, it was just so outrageously over the top. You kind of, yeah. but remember, it was kind of on a joke. It was followed like it was Ukraine or or uh, uh, Roe versus Wade or something. It was just like that. Uh, <laughs> it was a snowy, slow news year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But by, by the way, you, you in, in your threads, which are great, everyone should follow. Uh, follow Josh on on Twitter. You brought up the the think tank, and yeah. I, you know, uh, even though I've, I've sort of argued with him lately and I, I don't really care for his work lately, but, uh, Dan Carlin, who's definitely done some great podcasts. He used to talk about this all the time, um, until they started inviting him to CENTCOM meetings. And now he's, uh, now he loves the United States, uh, uh, empire, but <clears throat> it's funny how that works. Uh, you know, he told the story. So they, like, he was this huge, huge critic of the United States empire and, he believed the only thing in politics that was worth even talking about was uh, disempowering the FBI and stuff. And then he did a show where he's like, they called me up and asked, they said that they sometimes have civilians come to sitcom meetings. Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, so <clears throat> <laughs> he used, when he was very, used to talk about this subject a lot, about how business gets done in D.C., he made it sound like there was these think tanks there were these, you know, there's all these think tanks, which I, I, I don't think are that old of an idea, but when you, when you win election to the white house, mm -hmm. basically, uh, the government, like the, from, from the, the executive, the executive office is like a machine and it has all these levers and there's keys that go into certain slots. And basically you can't operate it unless you, 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 you have to pick one. Uh, you know, if you if you want to race a NASCAR, you you literally have to pick a Ford or a Chevy or a Toyota or whatever, and and you just have to do this. Is this is this true? Um, it's even more complicated, but but essentially Good. yes. So I'll try and break down what I believe to be the reality of it. Obviously, people on the internet are going to disagree and. I wish them all the power in the world to do that. So uh, engagement is good. It helps drive followership. Maybe we ask for all of it. Uh, <laughs> so here, here's the way in which I've sort of started to parse this out for folks on, on Twitter is that there are like five, 6,000 jobs in the executive branch. Remember, we've got three, three branches of government. We've got the legislative, House and the Senate, and the committees on the, they call it the Hill. Then you got the executive and then the judicial court system. They're separate, basically separate. Um, the executive branch is everything that you've ever heard of in the government, meaning like the Department of Energy, the Department of the Interior, the FBI, the Department of Justice, all that is under the executive. The president is the chief executive and is in charge of literally all of it, can make any decision that he wants uh, inside the executive branch um, legislative is different. When you, when you win an election, the incoming president has to staff all of those agencies with the senior most leaders in them, 
secretary of this, assistant secretary of that. Five, 6,000 jobs. And those jobs are opportunities for interest groups to try and get their people in to those positions of power. And because the executive branch is so big, in many cases, those jobs have a lot of uh, implicit latitude, meaning like you can basically go rogue in those jobs. Uh, and in fact, in, this, in, in President Trump's administration uh, and people like Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, all but go on the record in various books written by various high profile authors, essentially saying that like, yeah, I know the president told me that we should pull out of Afghanistan, but we basically decided that we weren't going to do that. And so if that's the Secretary of Defense, basically bragging to a New York Times journalist that he disobeyed what I think in many cases of good faith could be understood as a lawful order from the president of the United States. Imagine what a deputy assistant secretary four layers below that can do when they're in charge of like mining licenses in like the upper Midwest or something like that. So you got five, 6,000 jobs in each administration, in each presidential administration. You have all these people in Washington that want those jobs, probably like seven to one, eight to one, 10 to one. Um, and, and the point is, is that what that ends up creating upstream is these credentialing games, which exist all across Washington. And I'd say in that Acela corridor. So you get people that say to themselves, and I know lots of people that have said that I had people that would come in my office in the White House and they'd sit down, they'd get, they'd get a meeting with me somehow. I didn't take many meetings, but occasionally when we get through, they'd sit down, they'd be like, I want to be the deputy assistant secretary of X for Y. And I would say, why? And they would say like, well, because I've been a fellow at this think tank and I've got a master's degree from here and I, uh, I held this job on the Hill, et cetera. And I would say, okay, that's great. But why do you want this job? And you know, what would end up happening is you'd get to the Boyd answer of they want to be, right? Why do they want to be? Because they know that if they hold that job, they're going to get a board, board seat at some company afterwards. They're going to make, you know, bank after. Anton made this point on your podcast uh, when he was on. Uh, my, my dear friend, Michael, made this point. Uh, and so the point is, is like, what do those upstream credentialing games look like? Because the spoils are so big, right? These are when, when people play the game and I, I did not, um, I, uh, basically unemployed after the white house <laughs> for several months until I started my company. Um, uh, but I didn't want to uh, ask, I didn't want to ask, but it was not, you know, you're in California, not Washington, DC. Zero phone calls. I got zero phone calls. No, no job offers, no consulting gigs, no board memberships, nothing. Um, now I started my own company. We have great venture capital investors. Uh, and I was, you know, working on that in, I rented out an attic in, uh, in old town, Alexandria. Um, and, and was, was just trying to figure out what to do. But when you play this game, yeah, there, there are million dollar jobs, um, at, at the end. So the spoils are so great that what you create is like gravity, right? People will read the bios of these assistant secretaries and they'll be like, wow, this person was on like the appropriations committee. And then they were on like the, the, um, 
uh, House Armed Services Committee, and then they were a fellow at the Center for New American Security, and then they were in Obama's Pentagon, and then now they're on the board of Raytheon or something like that. Um, and how do you? And then they'll start asking these questions in their own mind, or you know they'll tell you this. They well, I decided I wanted to be a fellow at CNAS because that's the pathway to getting a political job. CNAS, CNAS, Center for a New American Security. It's like a kind of dem- Democrat um, think tank for national security issues. How do you get to be a fellow at the think tank? You write articles that they like. Well, what do they like? You go to their website. You can read what types of articles they like to publish, right? And you basically can reverse engineer the synthetic resume of someone that looks like someone that might be a good candidate for these jobs. And that happens all over Washington for nearly all of these positions, right? So for every deputy assistant secretary gig, for every this, for every that, um, you have these interest groups that create or fund think tank programs. They fund nonprofits. Um, they, they lobby folks on the Hill, right? And it, it creates these pathways that people think they can take if they want to get some of these jobs that lead to high-paying private sector jobs after they get, in the, get out of the admin. Um, and there's, there's almost no job in the executive branch that you can't reverse engineer these types of career paths for. Um, and uh, I don't know how to fix that, but... Uh, I think it does a disservice to the American people because you end up getting folks in these positions and what they are is risk averse because they don't want to get fired. They don't want to rock the boat. If they do something that the civil servants don't like, they'll start leaking on them. Their job performance goes down. They'll get upset. They might get fired. So they don't want to rock the boat. And we saw this with people that work for President Trump where they were just go along to get along. And if going along to get along meant that you weren't going to aggressively pursue the president's stated priorities that he ran for, they just say, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to chill out. Oh my God. Oh my God. So this is, we talk about this all the time that, uh, and I don't know if you would agree with, with, with this exact chronology, but the theory works like this, that basically there is a, um, because all this is, is foreign to uh, the more right-wing uh, or conservative brain. Because in the conservative brain, like someone, there would have to be a big cheese somewhere telling like Obama or someone like that would have to be making these calls, would have to, uh, there would have to be a big man up top because that's how we would do things because someone would be responsible for these decisions and all this kinds of stuff. I mean, the idea is basically that that uh, just you have uh, there's guys like Boss Tweed, uh, peace be upon him, and, and Huey Long, all these guys, and then you have this thing called civil service reform, where it makes it hard to fire a bureaucrat because instead of bureaucrats being loyal to the person people elected to tell them what to do, they will be uh, and like if you start saying this out loud, you're like, wait a minute, what? The idea is that uh, they'll just be this neutral party. You're like, wait a minute, what the hell is that? I thought this. I thought we vote for people and stuff. Well, this is this was what they did, and yeah. this created. There's this thing in D.C. that I know. Like it, the thing that's hard to understand is like it. 
if we did it, we wouldn't do it like this. We would have a big cheese. They don't. There's no big cheese. There's just this thing. They they say the blob. There's other names I won't use that they're loyal to. There's not one thing. It, 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 there's not one thing that makes decisions, but they're, they're mostly all in agreement. Like, you know, if, if this was a, some organic thing, one of those people would have called you, but this is the machine. When, when, when Matt, when, when Mattis goes rogue, he doesn't have to like, there's not one specific person. He doesn't have to call Nancy Pelosi or something, but he's, he's be, yeah. By this, this thing is, it, uh, Oh my God. It, it, would you agree? That, I'm sure that there's, shot callers of various kinds and there's hierarchies and this, but, uh, would you, is there, is there no, no single brain or Obama or something like that, 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 that runs this thing or is there, maybe there is. Yeah. I, I don't think that there is. And I wish that that wasn't the case. Um, I'll, I'll tell a little story from my military time. I, I went through a, um, military training course that, um, exposes, the people that go through it to pretty severe hardship just in case they ever get like captured by the enemy. And without going into too much detail, I went through an exercise that was supposed to be very mentally and physically stressful. And there was a lot of noise. Uh, I won't, just won't go into detail, but just like a lot of noise for many hours. Right. And at the end of the exercise, about a week later, we had a psychologist come in and ask us, Hey, who heard the foreign language that they speak in this section where, you know, for like 24 hours, you were just hearing a lot of like various noises and like almost everyone in the room raised their hand. I did not. Um, and what he said is like the, the brain, he's like, first of all, no foreign languages were spoken in that section session. Right. But he's like, look, the human mind wants to make order out of chaos. And I've just really mm-hmm. taken that lesson to heart. Like, the system is chaotic. There is an order to it, but is it, a, it is a chaotic order that exists. And it's sort of, um, people say it's emergent. The order is emergent. It's uh, out of this chaos, right? What do I mean by that? I mean that like people have figured out how to create these gravitational pathways through these hallways of power such that like you don't need to explicitly tell someone how to be the person who could eventually be the board member of Raytheon or something like that. It's very clear. Read the board members' biographies. Read the biographies of the staff directors on the House Armed Services Committee. Read the biographies of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State. Read the biographies of the senior non-resident fellows at, uh, you know, name, name your think tank. And it becomes very clear how one navigates the process. Um, I, I don't think that it's organized. I mean, it you know, there are people that organize little things of it, but they just realize that evolutionarily, like this is how you do it. Um, and it's obviously really like mentally dissonant, mentally distressing when you think about that, because you want humans, we want a neck to choke, right? Like our organizational yeah. structures, right? The military, it's like, you have a chain of command. Something fucks up, I'm coming to you. But like our system, it's like it's like almost the opposite to some degree. Oh, uh, that, that, yes, I totally. Well, agree. That's, this yeah. is how you can tell. This is how you can see when a system is designed to lie to you. 
if there is no neck to choke, if, it's, if yeah. it, everything is distributed in a way that there, there never could possibly be any accountability from, from someone because everyone's just pointing at the other person, ah, it must have been his fault. Like, you know you are, you are trapped in a system that was designed to trick you. And that is... Yeah. It could be emergent design, though. Yeah, it has evolved. It has evolved sure. to enable trickery. Yeah. This, this some cur- trickery cur- is easy. Curtis Jarman talks about all the time, like, this is sort of like the main technology that we see advanced is basically uh, hiding from responsibility. Uh, nothing is responsible for any, uh, for, for anything. There, there is, there's never any... Uh, like that's a great, great line, uh, neck, neck to choke. Um, yeah, I, I'm, it's not the greatest, uh, uh, example, but it's a decent example. It comes up quite a bit, maybe more specifically certain parts of DC. Um, but the Praetorian guard, it's a good, it's a good chance. There was no big cheese in the Praetorian guard that they were playing status games i'm sure in the praetorian guard and stuff but uh you know like you rule the the thing that that's like that no one has to tell you about that the the worst example i mean the most dis most depressing example is that well if you are a young kid and your parents are conservatives you get on tiktok and denounce them dye your hair and and do this yeah. So you something is going to help you, and they may, uh, if you, they may get Makes you into a great ha- college admissions essay. Yep. Yes, they might put you into Harvard. They might do this, and but you don't have to call any person in particular. There's just yeah. this demonic machine that you, if you offer yourself, will. I, it, it's it's a very terrible. I mean, I'm not. I certainly the Lord don't. Host provides. Yeah, I don't believe that this thing is unbeatable. However, it, it's a—I mean, it, it's a, it's a serious—it's uh, it's a serious issue. Maybe it can. Maybe this is something that could never be uh, uh, totally dominated. I don't even like this—this uh, 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 this being this this machine that's not really. I don't even know if it has. I don't think it, it thinks on its own. Like if someone was was to like come out and say, "I'm gonna take down the deep state. I'm and I'm doing this. I'm doing that." I don't even know if they if it knows. What would be the response, et cetera? Anyways, it's it's a, it's very interesting. Well, I mean, the, I know the response. The response we we've seen it already. They ask you, well, "What do you mean? Who's the deep state? Give me names." And you can't because of the na- the very nature of the thing. Well, we've seen Take, that, uh, that, but they've also seen. Remember when they ran all those articles? They said, "Yes, there is a deep state, and it's good, and and they're they're patriots." Right. I mean, yeah. Obviously, they know it's real, but this. It's it's like saying like oh uh, or there's no such thing as organized crime. If so, if there is, you know, po- who's the the biggest crime like the biggest crime person in your in your your city or whatever? Well, you might not know that if they're doing their job properly, you're not going to know who they are. That only happens when they're screwing up. By the way, that's uh, J. Edgar Hoover. While he was alive, he would always say, "There's no such thing as a mafia," um, which the mafia bragged that it's because they had pictures of him. Doing his boyfriend, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the TikTok thing uh, makes me think what you just said about the, you know, denouncing your parents on TikTok. And like, this is obviously something as old as time. Like, you know, you complain, you complained to your friends about your parents when they made you do whatever, you didn't want to do it. But the difference was you go back, like, there was no separate community. Well, there were, but most, like, 
it wasn't so easy to just jump into this separate community that was completely partitioned from your everyday life. Like you could complain to your, to your friends, but ultimately you're going back to the dinner table with your parents. You live with your parents, you, you know, whatever that that's, you're part of that community. I, I saw a crazy stat the other day when the people were discussing Twitter. TikTok is like has like three times the the users as Twitter now. Yeah, that surprised yeah. me. I, I, I guess it should. I mean, I guess my age, whatever. I don't know anything about. I, I've never used TikTok. However, it's like it's approaching YouTube levels of popularity, which mm-hmm. that's that shocked me. Because there have been well-known, like, TikTok is a Chinese company. Uh, they have to have, like, a head, I think they have to have their own separate headquarters in the United States for legal reasons. Because, you know, some people in the past thought maybe it was a bad idea to have this Chinese company monitoring, like, having a direct line to people's phones in the United States and in the West. Uh, have, didn't we just see very, very recently an admission that, oh, whoops, actually we lied about all that and that data still is going to China? It's not being cordoned off in, in, their, in the, the Western, sorry, the, the Western, I guess, uh, branches of the company. And in fact, China is getting all this data. Yeah, I, I would direct folks to sort of the media reporting on all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not sure what's, what's in the public domain on that. I, from first principles, though, first thing I would say is Western social media companies are not allowed in China, right? Uh, Western companies that are allowed in China are allowed there only because they are actually joint ventures with the Chinese Communist Party, you know, the 5149 arrangements or however they, they do it today. And so from a first principles, I believe that we should have parity, you know, when we're doing business with other folks. Facebook, Google, Twitter, all these companies not allowed in China. I don't see why in that case we would allow any of them to operate here in the United States just from a self-respect position. And this is really the president's first position on all these things. President Trump's first position on all these things is like we need to have equal relationships with our trading partners. In the case of China, here's a great example. Now let's go one step further, which is that like, Social media tools like this are, you know, really can be really powerful, right? And the fact that here you have one that has a huge user base and legally under the Chinese cybersecurity law and the Chinese national security law, uh, TikTok and its parent company is legally required to secretly respond and act on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party whenever asked, right? So it's like, I'm just not sure why you would allow something like that to reach out and touch your populace. I think it's irresponsible. Uh, And therefore we, for another reason, shouldn't allow it. And then obviously there's some very direct technical activity that has come to light and, and that has been covered in the press as well about like, what does the TikTok talk app enable on your phone? What data are they collecting? Where does that data go? Who's able to analyze it? What are the messages that are put out over this platform? Um, There's a great article from a few months ago talking about like, what does TikTok display in China? What does it display in the United States for kids under 18? Um, Math and science videos in China. And then it goes dark at a certain hour for the country. 
And then here in the United States, it's all sorts of things that are not that. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard, and I don't, you know, whatever. I, I, I didn't investigate this thoroughly, but from what I saw in China, the TikTok, like their version of TikTok is extremely moderated. And I don't just mean like you can't say Tiananmen Square. Like you basically can't, they have like, you know, um, 1990s level of, of parental censorship of just TikTok in general. It's extremely limited at the amount of time you can use it. It's you can ju- you can just tell they understand that this is you should not let children like view TikTok videos for hours on end. You probably you they, you really shouldn't let them view any TikTok videos, like because like, Bog Beef has talked about this before that a lot of these viral videos and I'm sure this is intentional. Like, so it's to make people, it's to make people like us mad and get and get more viral attention. But it'll be like, yeah, let me let me do a little dance, and I'm going to tell you how I started taking uh, estrogen and sped on my father's corpse at his funeral. Like, it's like it just you there you would be no reason to allow that into into the the brains of your children if if you actually had control over your society, which they, for better or worse, very obviously do. What's what's depressing is, um, okay, China is an atheist communist country, right? They're they're com- nominally they're commies. They're the Reds, and uh, you know, religion is banned. Um, I, I I know that's probably not exactly correct, but they're certainly a communist country, and the national religion is atheism. Uh, they're more concerned about this about about this kind of stuff. I mean, there we have zero concern apparently. I I guess we have uh. We don't have very very many limits that I know of, uh, but they're like, oh God, you wouldn't want. They, I know they are they um they don't let uh they ban K-pop because they're like that's gonna screw kids up. You don't want to watching that. That's um no way. And um I, like uh, I don't know. It, 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 it's a bad look that the communists are beating you on that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I just wanted to, I just want to say uh. All you people that are like, um, uh, you know, a lot of people complain. They're like, uh, the only reason why there's ever been any limits on any of, of uh, my quote unquote fun is because of Christianity and the Bible and how it's translated and all that stuff. Well, these people don't have any of that and they still understand this somehow. So uh, anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, I mean, it's a matter of public record that starting in the 1990s, the Chinese engaged in a massive organized campaign to steal intellectual property from Western companies. And, you know, fast forward 20 years, and now you have them basically going out around the world with these companies that are backed by Chinese financial structures, loans, debt, selling telecom equipment, right? The things that operate your 5G network to basically anyone that'll buy them, right? So imagine being able to like, recreate your AT&T network in some new country, only the, instead of, uh, you know, being Ericsson or Nokia or or Cisco or whatever, basically it's this equipment that's made by the companies in China, the Chinese Communist Party controlled, and, you know, quote unquote, you have no idea what those things are capable of. And there's been a lot of reporting and I would just direct folks to do your own research. But if you think that, and I think that, TikTok is a terrible idea. I think it should be banned in the United States. You know, I think we've got three different things going on here. You know, equal trading relationships. 
uh, data and then the psychological aspect. But then think about like what's actually moving all the information around your system. And if you have a Chinese Communist Party built and maintained telecom infrastructure that's running your smart grid, your smart cars, your internet service, all that stuff, I just think that people don't understand the order of magnitude of problem this can present. I just, I'm not sure why any Western country that seeks to be independent of China would enable them to build their telecom network. And yet, many such cases. And this is, uh, well, I, I, I know mob stuff, and <clears throat> they got John Gotti through a bug at, at the Ravenite Social Club. They got the other, they got, they got uh, at least two other guys by um, uh, a dude knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm a cable guy. I need to uh, fix your cable. They, they had pulled the cable down the road. They went in there and they saw a bug, put him in jail. Everyone knows about, uh, and then when we talk about China, China's got this thing where they go to these African countries and they say, hey, um, you're a poor African country. How would you like to have brand new uh, uh, halls of government, like the Capitol building and stuff? And they say, sure. And they wire the buildings and they know every single thing that all these people say. Yeah, this is a very, very old story. I don't know if we did it in the 19th century, but like, cause I know in the 20th century, we tap, we tapped into the under, under the, the under Atlantic telegraph cables and spied on our rivals and enemies. And it was like, it's just uh, the most obvious thing in the world. If you give control of one of your geopolitical, give control of these data networks to one of your geopolitical rivals, they're going to use it to spy on you. Period. Why wouldn't they? You'd, you'd be, if your country wasn't doing that and it had the means to do it, you would be almost, you have like, you. it's like how you said a company has a fiduciary responsibility for its shareholders. Well, the Chinese government has that responsibility for like, for, for China. Like they have, they, they have to be doing this. If you're, if your side is not doing this or not taking precautions against it, you kind of have to ask, why is that the case? Well, it's a very, you know, very, <clears throat> on the bright side, um, when Trump gets reelected, he should uh, use all this as justification to centralize power. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, is um, is China the number? And I'm not going to say like we'll say competitor. Is China number one competitor? Like far, far above all the the Iran's and all this stuff. I know. Like I've seen pictures of these Chinese cities and. There's definitely big buildings and stuff like that. A lot of people say the Chinese economy is fake or it's not. I just know they have a lot of, uh, they have a real estate bubble and this and that. Are, are, are they a serious competitor? I think the Chinese have a vision for what they want the world to look like in 50 years. My personal read is that that vision is terrifying. It is dystopian. It is essentially, uh, technological, uh, fascism, communist fascism. And, uh, and yeah, it's not a world that I, I want to live in. It's not the world that I want my kids to live in or my grandkids to live in. Uh, and I think that, you know, we ought to get it together and present an alternate vision of the world um, that responds to the values that helped make America the Western values. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Chinese vision is one that is a world safe for uh, 
you know, uh, Maoist totalitarian, you know, communism, basically. And, uh, you know, they're, they're proceeding down that path to try and bring that into reality. Um, and I don't see any type of like grand vision setting like that from other countries that we would claim, you know, are major adversaries. And I don't want to get into other, other countries. Certainly there are folks that, that threaten, you know, our allies or, or do terrible things in the world. I got all that. But like, but really when it, when it comes down to it, like the Chinese want to be, um, you know, the center of power for the foreseeable millennia in the world. Um, and they want to organize it according to these, you know, Marxist principles. And uh, I think that's a terrible idea. And I think it's something worth our great exertion to prevent. Uh, you know, you can't take anything for granted. My my view on China, and I have I don't have anything to back this up other than just looking at history. China's very good at building empires and uh, being extremely extremely powerful in their region. And there's been times in history when they were the most powerful nation on earth. But China just China's always China. It's it's gonna it's it's gonna it. I I don't I don't think that even. Uh, I, I'm not saying that that uh, the NATO is going to stop China from doing that. I think China is probably going to stop China from doing that. It's probably going to blow up into a billion pieces again and then reconstitute itself over and over. It's just that's just kind of what China does. Look, I hope I hope you're I hope you're right. And obviously, we've seen many examples where I think they just make missteps when they're dealing with other countries. Um, when they're dealing with themselves, like, you know, she's like zero COVID policy, which I think has really done a disservice to their economy. Uh, but I just don't know. And but what I can say is that they do have a vision for what they want the world to look like. And I think we should should be offering our own alternative. So I'm going to disagree with you. You say you're not a China expert. I, I understand that. But like the zero COVID policy for <laughs> To me, this seems like this almost has to be about internal Chinese politics. This has to be Xi fighting his internal. Like that couldn't be sincere, right? Like, we know that he used that to lock down regions of, of uh, where they supported um, some some other yeah. power group. Yeah, you know that 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 feels kind of right to me. Again, I, I don't just gut. Um, you know, I, I always sort of interpret these things as like there's what they're saying they're doing. And then there's yeah. like, how is power being expressed inside that complex system of complex systems? So, I mean, if that turned out to be true, I'd absolutely buy it. So, uh, all right. Uh, I've got a, we're on two hours here. I've got a, this is just a quick hit and you may, and this may be uh, something you've not known about or dealt with, but <clears throat> just because my interest, I have to ask. How how big of a player in in uh, I don't know, in in how 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 effective? What are the capacities for? I don't know about I wouldn't say cyber warfare, but uh, this this sort of this sort of thing uh, does organized crime have? And this could be any. This could be the uh, cartels, 
or or anybody. And if this is something that, that you never dealt with, and you don't worry about. It. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and I'm not going to answer it, but I'm going to give you a framework for thinking about it, which is that cyber tools start out where they are just absolutely boutique. One person discovers something, they tell someone else, they sell it to someone, you know, uh, some small group gets some type of capacity, and then when they use it, maybe it gets sort of blown out and everybody gets to see it eventually. Sometimes not, but let's just go with that as the as the framework. The point is, like, these things inevitably become more and more and more public. Um, you know, the, the tactics used by Kevin Mitnick the first time become the tactics used by someone else a thousand times later, right, and so on and so forth. And I think that this is an interesting dynamic, right? Imagine if, like, the first nuclear weapon is used by America, and then, like, eventually, mm. every time someone uses a nuclear weapon, everyone sees it, and they're like, oh, I can just build that myself, right? Um, and so it, it, it sort of cascades out and down to the point where, like, there absolutely are capabilities that are widely available. I'm not even going to talk about where they are, but, you know, people can find these types of things that are available. They're illegal in the United States in, in almost every case. Um, but, um, you know, they're, they're findable. And the point is, is that like a smart person that is working outside of an American legal system or a foreign legal system can find these tools or they can hire unscrupulous individuals to do these things. And those tools only, only grow over time. The, the ones that have made their way out into the open. Um, and that is totally, you know, uh, derivative of the fact that maybe sometimes you have very brilliant individuals that can figure things out themselves on their own. And so as folks think about like what it means to operate in this information layer that I was talking about, call it the cyber domain, whatever you want to call it, um, a few lessons that I take from this one, people matter, really talented single individuals can actually have great impact in that in that environment, in that in that domain, in the cyber domain. Um, so single individuals uh, can make a huge difference. Maybe they're working for organized crime. Maybe they're working for a nation state. Maybe they're an open source researcher. Right. The point is, they can, they can make a huge difference. Uh, and the second is just this whole thing about how like things eventually get known, uh, which means that uh, a lot of um, a lot of things can be used by people with decreasing capacities over time. Uh, it's, it's no secret that there's a website called Shodan, uh, which is a sort of a, uh, a website that indexes a lot of information or, or sort of tracks certain capabilities, things like that. Um, and you'll hear this phrase, script kiddies, meaning like, you can go on these dark web websites and you can download these tools. Again, this is illegal in the United States. Do not do it. You can download things that can allow you to do stuff that like 20 years ago would have required, uh, you know, the utmost secrecy and resourcing to do at the, at the nation state level. And now it's, you know, hmm. free, so to speak. Again, don't, don't do it. It's just not, not worth it. So I think the concern that I have is that you know, whether it's organized crime, a single actor, or a small nation state, it's very easy to catch up, so to speak, to operate, to start operating at speed very quickly. 
10 really talented people can do a lot, no matter who they work for. Did you say the website's name is Shodan? Yeah. Oh, that's how you know it's legit, because some, some huge fucking nerd designed that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you, you, that, you nailed it, because that's sort of where I was... That that's exactly where I was going. I was going to say like, uh, it's very interesting, and it's like this, all this stuff is pretty young. I don't know if it's that young anymore. I mean, if if you want to say that this is sort of, uh, if this is the same thing as the guys with punch cards, which often I don't know if this if the, if exactly someone using punch cards in their when they were nineteen is they they have to still be alive, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those people, uh, I mean, there's this feeling with the, all the, the, the people that sort of built the internet, you know, I think of, uh, America, who's the guy that wrote JavaScript? Oh, Brendan Ike. Oh yeah. yeah. Brendan Ike. Yeah. Brave browser. Yes. You have Brendan Ike and you, and you have the, uh, the, the uh, was and really, uh, all, all these people that sort of built all this stuff. If you ever use, Linux, there's 10,000 these little programs that sort of hook up everything. And the guys that made all this stuff were generally uh, very nice people with big beards and the pocket protectors. And, uh, you know, with Waz's case, you have this guy who's like a real, uh, you know, a, 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 a tiger of business sort of with him in his pocket. But like you said, you had to be this sort of person. Uh, you couldn't really be a thug and... And uh, knows know the ins and outs of this stuff to to play around, uh, and these people still I'm sure like uh, there was a lot of discussion about when they who was gonna, when they were going to change over who maintains the Linux uh, kernel and all this kind of stuff. Um, as time goes on, uh, that is a great point that these people are they're not going to be the big huggable Waz guys anymore. This this will be be able to be in the hands of people who. Uh, <laughs> like Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, we'll have much more short-term thinking of... Uh, right. Yeah. It's an interesting world. Do you think the United States uh, watches watches uh, that decision on, on who maintains the Linux kernel? Honestly, I doubt it. Um, again, this is a lot of people think like, oh, there's a hand behind the curtain. I'm sure that there are people with government ties or who talk to people in government who, you know, have... A voice in that conversation, but like, I I never observed um, those types of those types of activities, right? Whenever, whenever, and in many cases, I I played a role in some of these, like, oh, we're gonna it is international standards bodies, and I would lobby to get Americans into positions on them, and it was all done above board, um, and so I just I'm not sure that. I mean, look, if they were going to hand it over to some member of the Chinese Communist Party, I'm, I'm sure that would be alarming to people. But like that conversation would probably be an unclassified conversation, right? Like someone would just go and be like, hey, this is probably a bad idea, um, as opposed to some like secret squirrel thing happening, um, which, again, I, I'm sure that stuff happens. I imagine it's quite rare. And in, in this case, with such a high profile thing, uh, I don't think that's that would go but that's just my instinct when's the last time you visited defcon i tried to go my last i tried to go during 2020 uh couldn't i gave a little talk in 2019 about cybersecurity for maritime stuff in one of the side events i may go back this year um always a fun always a fun time 
You guys should come. Is Las Vegas below the Mason Dixon line? I can't remember. <laughs> Uh, it, it absolutely is cleared on. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of fun stuff about the about those territories during the Civil War. But we won't get into them tonight. Okay, these are things that these are the the things that you're talking about. People ask you about browser stuff, but uh, uh, you can say as little little as you want. But uh, if you have a uh, do you use Apple or Android Apple. phone? I knew it. I knew it. Uh, okay, uh, if you What's your what's your main operating system? Do you use Apple, Windows, Linux, what? Yeah, yeah. I do the I do I do full Apple. So about as good as you're gonna get, I think, from a security perspective. I mean the Google folks are great, very talented, but I, I think the Apple stuff's probably a bit a bit better. Uh do you do you put tape over the, the the uh camera on your laptop? Yeah. Okay. All right. This is a guy that knows as much as about anybody about security. And, uh, those are those answers. So do with them what you will. Uh, this was fantastic. Great to be here. guys. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Steinman S T E I N man dot yeah. dot com. Yep. And then on Twitter, Joshua Steinman. Find me shit posting. <laughs> fantastic. Well, th- thank you for your time, sir. And by the way, if you ever, uh, uh, someone is going to make a zillion dollars being the, uh, inspirational Jordan Peterson, man of Boydism. So it might as well be you. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. If anyone's listening and you want to do, uh, unpaid internship, we'll figure out how, how to do it legally. But I'd love, I'd love to get someone's help with, uh, you know, re, uh, getting all that stuff together and, and putting something coherent out that can bring Boyd to the masses. I could use some help on it. So maybe someone's out there listening. Excellent. All right. Thank you. See you guys. Making their way the only way they know how. That's just a